there's so many beautiful outcomes and possibilities um, if we embed Aboriginal food sovereignty and it's not taking anything away um, from non-Aboriginal people. It's, you know, how we can kind of move forward. This is The Producers. I'm Danny Vallant. Kali Kalopi works with Black Duck Foods, an Indigenous produce enterprise that encompasses farming, learning, connection and culture on Ewan country in East Gippsland in Victoria. Kali brings her whole self to her role. There's her rich and proud Aboriginal heritage, the complexity in how she was raised in generosity and community, and an academic lens which also informs her intention and ambition. So yeah, my name's Kelly Kalopi and I work at uh, Black Duck Foods. I'm a bachelor Angathimri woman. Um, I grew up on Yagora People's Country, which is um, Brisbane, and I've got family connections to Bindle Mob on my grandfather's side and Waka Waka Country. Um, Sherberg and Mapoon Mission were the missions that both my parents were born and raised on. And I come, I guess I come from two very staunch um, Aboriginal parents. And, you know, kind of talking a little bit about me, um, I guess I, you know, I was a lot of my life I was a girl that was told constantly to use my benangs, which is kind of somewhat translates to use my ears, which really kind of never just means the Western notion of listening. Um, I was kind of never told exactly what to do, but to observe and make my own way. And I guess food has always been really a big part of my life. And um, whether that was in the absence and limited access to food in the first 12 years of my life or, you know, contrasted when I went to a boarding school in um, for high school where there was, you know, an overabundance and waste of food to, you know, growing up with my father being really witty and able to use um, limited produce and produce incredible food um, and learning, you know, generational old recipes that were taught to him by his grandmother and um, other old auntie girls, such as, you know, Johnny Cakes and Chicken Vermicilli, which you'll hear lots of mob talk about those two things. Um, to now, f having finished my honours thesis, which uh, where I looked at Aboriginal food sovereignty and the relational dimensions of health and well-being, um, and as I mentioned before, working at Black Duck Foods um, now as well. I guess just kind of framing the lens that I bring to these conversations is, um, you know, one where I've had lots of opportunities in my life, definitely more opportunities than my parents and those before me. Um, and I'm kind of continually observing and learning how the layers of my own blackness um, in lots of different contexts that that plays out, um, how my blackness and privilege um, in spaces such as university, you know, spaces such as having a job, <laughs> um, that it's not for my own self-worth or ego, um, but for the thriving of Aboriginal communities. Um, I'm definitely no saint. Um, and it's not a singular story. I know for many blackfellas, ego and self-worth and caring for self and just the nuclear family isn't um, particularly considered the norm. Um, and I'm already going on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> um, but 
I guess really simply to not complicate my response, who I am is, um, you know, how I was raised. And I think there's a lot of beauty when you see reciprocity, reciprocity um, woven throughout poverty. You know, I didn't grow up with much, um, but what my family had, um, we gave to others. So I th that's kind of a bit of a synopsis of who I am. And I guess that's reflected in the decisions that I make, such as what um, jobs and spaces I work for and how they contribute back to bigger things than just themselves. Black Duck Foods launched in 2021, but it's built on countless generations of knowledge, tradition and connection to country. The social enterprise nurtures both soil and soul and ensures black voices are driving its activities and reap any rewards. So Black Duck Foods is an Aboriginal social enterprise. It's started in 2021 um, and it really came from the work of Bruce Pascoe, which um, people might be familiar with, um, his book Dark Emu. Um, that particular book put forth an argument um, for Australia to reconsider the narrative um, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were, you know, nomadic and uh, hunter-gatherer society. And so Black Duck Food started in 2021 from that. It's situated um, inland from Malakuta, um, which is part of the UN nation, and it's situated on a farm that's called Yambara um, Farms, which is the UN word for Black Duck. It's, we've got 65 acres um, and it's kind of nestled really beautifully beside the Wallagar River. And on that farm, I guess, you know, when people kind of visualise or think what a farm looks like, it definitely isn't, um, you know, we don't have cattle. Um, and a, but what we do have is a diverse range of um, native plants and tubers, such as yam daisies, lilies, murnong, um, we've got some quandongs, uh, and we're also growing a range of other things, kind of testing and trialing what's good for that particular, um, soil and country. And of course, I th what we're kind of more well known for is the native grasses that we, um, have on the farm. We also, um, harvest from other neighboring farms where we've built particular, um, I guess, genuine two-way working relationships. Um, yeah, there's so much to say about Black Duck Foods because it's, uh, it's a really dynamic farm, but it's attempting to do a lot of things with min minimal resources. Again, um, not a singular story. I've worked in, um, and do some part-time work in another Aboriginal organisation, um, Aboriginal organisations and communities attempting to work with minimum resources um, is something that's really familiar to lots of people. Um, again, I guess that's why it's um, really important that we have relationships with, um, with other spaces. Um, maybe just a couple of uh, tangible things about what we do, but, um, you know, the aspirations of Black Ducks Foods is that we're wanting to influence the direction of the Australian agricultural space um, towards a more sustainable future. And yeah, that, you know, er, this, the word sustainable is everywhere. Um, 
but when we're thinking of that word, I guess you know, Aboriginal communities have been living sustainably for eighty thousand plus years, and um, there's a, no- a lot of knowledge there. Um, so what Blacked Out Foods is attempting to do is to ensure that um, you know that Aboriginal people are included in those conversations, um, are leading those conversations, are part of the decisions. Um, when we're talking about what to do with the land and resources. And I guess also, you know, what we're attempting to do is we're, we work within the native food space as well in regards to our native greens, um, but we're really attempting to introduce domesticated food products um, onto the market, you know, keeping in mind, I guess, particular cultural protocols. Um, you know, we, we're not just growing anything, um, on that land, we're growing um, things that are familiar to that land, familiar to that soil, familiar to the old people there that harvested, propagated, nurtured, and processed those foods. Um, yeah. So as I mentioned before, sorry. We're yeah, we're really working with the grains and tubers that held our soil together and promoted its fertility. Um, and so lots of the work that we do links into those. Um, you know, aspirations that the globe is doing is around climate change and um, fertilising our topsoil and um, using, you know, traditional food growing country management processes um, to look after the land, but um, also importantly to share the economic benefits um, of land, of country, of resources back to Aboriginal communities where those foods or resources belong to prior to colonisation. Like many Aboriginal organisations, Black Duck Foods runs lean and small. Callie talks through the team and the relationships that sustain the social enterprise. We're a really small team. So I'm I'm based in Melbourne and we've got a manager based in Sydney and we've got two incredible knowledge holders, Terry, um, Terry Hayes and Chris Harrison that have been working on the farm for a number of years. Um, so if you drive down the dirt track, you'll see an Aboriginal flag um, wrapped around a tree as you're kind of entering um, once you've got off the main road. And what you'll come into is kind of like a bit of a valley and you'll see um garden beds and you'll actually see Bruce Pascoe's house but um and the Wallago River and so the two farmers um our farm manager Chris and Terry our farmhand um what they've been doing of over the last number of years is really I guess testing and trialing um how to um harvest our grass um which happens quite naturally that's not the hard part but also then how to process and mill native grasses into flour Um, and we've got a whole range of other garden beds so there's a lots of um, I guess testing and trialing with other native plants Um, we also do run workshops at the farm and that's kind of when um, I'll go to the farm to support so we're really attempting to get mobbed to the farm to show them you know, what it is that we're doing at the farm, how we're, um, you know, relearning these systems um, that Bruce says quite often hasn't been 
um, loss, like they're still there. So what we're doing is this relearning um, and resharing knowledge. Um, so yeah, there's a whole range of different projects that we do, but on a day-to-day -day basis, the fellas on the farm, um, you know, they're out there, they're learning country, they're looking after country, depending on the weather and depending on what needs to happen where, you know, we'll do cool burns as well. And what we've noticed when we're doing those cool burns, which are traditional, you know, farming practices prior to colonisation, is that we're noticing, you know, like wildlife coming back into those areas. We're also noticing um, invasive species being burnt off and then not coming back and the native grasses coming and growing significantly for a better harvest the following year. Um, so there is a lot of observing there is a lot of learning and there's a lot of capturing of what works and what doesn't work um, and really a lot of relationships. So we've got a number of relationships with neighbouring farms that are really, um, you know, you think of... <laughs> You think of uh, the question, how do we share this land given the complexities that exist um, around sovereignty of the land? Um, but we've had non-Aboriginal farmers approach us and say, you know, we want to work differently with this land and we want to work differently with First Nations people. And part of that is um, a truth-telling process. You know, it's being really honest and open about what happened on the land that um, that they're situated with on, within and then we're also having a conversation okay how can we work together um, and share that land so there's you know really beautiful examples of working differently um, and moving forward given our um, complicated history. Colonisation has been an ongoing process of dispossession, violence, disrespect and silencing. The Black Duck Foods Project includes reclamation, relearning, gathering, bearing witness and grieving. As Callie explains, it's about finding power, voice, belonging and healing. When you witness um, you and mob sitting on you and country, showing you practices burning country, showing you the native foods that their ancestors ate, um, not only is the country itself where the um, Yambara farm is situated on incredibly beautiful, um, I guess witnessing that level of connection and that level of reclamation that, hey, this country is black country, um, these are black foods and we want to share them with everyone, not just um, Aboriginal people coming to the farm. You know, um, non-Aboriginal people can come and experience that as well. Um, we do farm stays, but um, there's something really powerful when you have, when you get to witness mob from that country um, sharing cultural knowledge. And the first time that I went to Yambara Farm without even having that particular experience, and I'm not sure if it was COVID related, um, but I went out to the farm post some of the um, Melbourne lockdowns that had been happening and as soon as I was driving out to the farm because it is so incredibly beautiful I got tears in my eyes um, and then every time I go out and I witness or I learn something new um, there's this aspect of 
you know, that's not my country. Um, uh, but there's this aspect of belonging and um, that you're invited to be part of that belonging. Um, and it's really, yeah, it's really difficult to um, articulate. But I guess also, um, you know, when we do have mob come out to the farm and we've got a couple of big workshops coming up over the next month where we're having quite a few people come out and stay for two days and two nights, you know, some of the feedback that we've had from previous um, previous people come out is this like overwhelming um, sense of gratitude and healing. So there's kind of this emotional healing aspects that happen, but it kind of just, you know, obviously it makes sense. Lots of people can relate to when you go out in nature or when you go for a walk or, um, you know, when you kind of just sit and be, when lots of people go camping, there is this rejuvenation that happens. Um, but I think the extra layer of um, the extra layer for me is just being around mob. So, you know, building connections, rebuilding connections that potentially, you know, got um, fragmented due to dispos dispossession and due to force policies that, you know, ripped families and communities apart. There's this kind of rebuilding and reclaiming and um, relearning things that people feel grief, you know. Um, people, f you know, mob feel grief if they don't feel connected. They feel grief from what's happened. So there's this kind of moulding um, experience that um, supports people's healing process. Um, yeah, it's really special and yeah, again, I'll say it a third time, but a little bit hard to articulate. A greater interest in and commercialisation of native foods doesn't necessarily lead to benefits for traditional owners. Callie talks about the continuing colonisation of Aboriginal foodways and the ways Black Duck Foods works to reclaim food and its context and stories. I think, you know, the native food industry is you know, native foods have been part of the colonisation process, I guess just being uh, really upfront about that, you know, that it, that if we think of the three things that have kind of been part of this process, it's, you know, the denial of Aboriginal people's sovereignty. It's been that food has been colonised, Aboriginal people's food ways have been colonised. You know, we've had forced dietary transitions um, following colonisation and contemporary experiences of races, racism in the Western industrialised food system. You know, in the past, I guess, there was this aversion to cultivate local foods, you know, this really undervaluing it. Um, you know, the Aboriginal people were savages, that their food was also not valued. Um, but what we're seeing now... Um, which is also one of the reasons why Bruce established Black Duck Foods. But what we're seeing now is that non-Indigenous spaces are seeing this value in native foods and it's a monetary value. You know, it's kind of, it's a very different value to how mob see food, which is food has a story. And so within the native foods industry, um, 
obviously it's wrapped up in lots of other processes and systems and um, really minimal regulations, but what is happening at the moment, which is really um, quite scary, I guess, um, is that the native foods industry at the moment is roughly $20 million, a $20 million industry, um, you know, less than 2%, I think it's like 1.3% of the profits goes back to Aboriginal places. And, you know, this industry is moving quickly. There's a There's been a forecast that it will reach 40 million by 2025. Um, I guess why that's, why scary is probably not the best word to use, but it is a bit scary because the wealth of Australia and where wealth is situated is situated from stolen land and resources. And if we think of things such as, you know, in Victoria, we've got the truth-telling process, um, we've got a treaty process happening. We also, um, where was I going with that? Um, might have lost that thought, sorry. But, yeah, in Victoria, so, you know, food can be part of a truth-telling process. Um, but I guess, yeah, one of the reasons why that is quite um, scary is that it's if we leave Aboriginal communities and people out of this industry, similar to what we've done in a whole bunch of other spaces, um, it's, again, just part of the colonisation process. Um, unfortunately, you know, if we think of things such as clo closing the gap, um, Aboriginal food sovereignty and the native food industry can be part of that process and can be part of that solution. Um, you know, we ideally um, what we're wanting to see is Aboriginal people in those spaces where they're growing food, they're processing food, they're part of that production line um, and they're getting the revenue and the economic benefit from food that their ancestors um, have a strong connection to and story to. Um, so uh, um, maybe just the other point on the native food industry is that, um, you know, not all... Aboriginal communities might want to produce food and package food and sell food. Some some communities want food security and need food security and, um, you know, obviously there's differences between rural, remote um, and urban settings. So it's just kind of keeping in, what, keeping in mind what does Aboriginal food sovereignty look like in those communities um, and what are those aspirations of those communities. But... Um, yeah, in regards to the native food industry, it's leaving mob out um, and it's doing it at a rapid pace. So we're really trying to advocate and educate um, some key messages of, you know, if you're working with native foods or you're purchasing native foods, um, you know, what are the ethical considerations? What are the moral complications um, that you should be thinking about? Um, you know, we know there's a lot of non-Aboriginal businesses even using, you know, particular terms that reflect that it could potentially be an Aboriginal business or a Black-owned business um, and, you know, profiting off that with potentially not 
returning any economic benefit um, back to local Aboriginal communities where they you know, that profits should, where they should see some of those profits. One of the key black duck projects is growing and harvesting native grains. Callie explains the complexities of growing crops with origins in different Aboriginal nations and the potential availability to the broader community. So black duck food is selling um, flour, native flour. So we do, at the moment, um, as I mentioned, so we've got a couple of relationships with some farms where we harvest flower um, grass from as well. Um, and we have grass on Yambara Farm. So what we're doing at the moment, and it really is dependent on um, our harvest season. So we, the fellas, not me, um, did a harvest this year, so in February and March. And at the moment what we've got stock on, and we've got quite a bit of stock, is we, we do a blend of kangaroo and spear grass and we do a blend of Mitchell and button grass. Um, again, you know, we just kind of being really clear, the grasses that we do grow, um, they don't belong to you and mob. So part of that process of us growing those native grasses is having those conversations back to the groups such as, you know, Mitchell grass, it belongs to the Kimilaroi people. Um, so making sure that we've got permission to grow and harvest that grass. And obviously part of that process is, you know, what are those returns back to Kimilaroi mob? What are we doing to ensure that... Um, we're sharing that knowledge and we're sharing those profits. So, um, yeah, people can buy the flower on our website. Uh, and as I said, it's kind of dependent on harvest each season, but we had a really good harvest year and we kind of foresee many more good harvest seasons, um, in particular with the growth of black duck foods because we're kind of envisioning a bit of growth happening in this space as well. Um, and that growth includes those relationships with um, farm land um, holders. So you've got the grain. What about turning it into bread? Callie talks through the challenges and joys of baking with native grains. So we've been making um, with the flour. There's a bunch of different restaurants and cafes testing different recipes. Um, and we've got a partnership with the National Indigenous Culinary Institute and they're also doing um, a bunch of testing. But on the farm, the fellas have been making, um, Chris in particular, he's an incredible cook. Um, but on the farm, we've been making um, a whole range of kind of different breads. Um, he's also been making kind of lasagna sheets um, and cheesecakes and a whole range of things. But one of the breads that we cooked, so um, with the Mitchell and Button Grass blend that has um, low quantities of gluten and then with the um, kangaroo and spear grass it has higher um, gluten and I guess that's important because it kind of depending on what you cook um, gluten is kind of helpful in different um, recipes but um, with the kangaroo and spear grass when we cooked a bread with that. So we do mix um, with organic white flour. Um, we are, we've got a recipe that we haven't completely um, 
that we're not completely happy with where it's all native ingredients, where we're cooking a loaf of bread, um, including a rising agent, um, that we're trying to figure out exactly what source we could get that from. But um, the bread itself is kind of dense and fluffy. Uh, I don't know if you can kind of have the two in the one, but um, quite dense. So the kangaroo and spear grass is dense. The flavour is really nutty. Um, if you taste, if you taste the flour itself, um, yeah, it, it's tastes earthy. <laughs> um, but with the bread. Um, as I said, it is quite dense, it's fluffy, but it doesn't leave this overly bloating feel um, similar to other breads. It does feel like you're eating something healthier and I could just be being really biased right now. Um, but it does taste like you're eating something special um, and that's the feedback we've been getting. So I guess there's been, you know, there's some high-end restaurants um that have been using the flour, such as Attica, um, for quite a while now and then um, really trying to target, you know, particular cafes or restaurants where community might access because, um, unfortunately, um, you know, it's because there is low supply and there's not a lot of resources within this particular context Um it's not as accessible as we would hope it to be. In particular, we're wanting, you know, mob to experience what this flower tastes like. Um, but yeah, we are, it is on our website and it does taste incredible um, and tastes like you're eating something that's really good for your gut. Um, I'm definitely into gut health um, and it doesn't leave you feeling um, regretful. <laughs> Black Duck Foods is about growing and supplying food, but it's also about access and pathways. Kelly shares some of the organisation's aspirations. You know, a big aspiration for Black Duck Foods is for it to grow, but for a planned growth um, and for it to provide a level of economic support to, um, you know, the staff that work there and to provide an opportunity for other Aboriginal communities if they're interested to enter these industries where there's not a lot of mob, but there's more mob entering. Um, so the reason that I, I guess, yeah, like the reason that I love it and the reason why I feel quite passionate about it is because I genuinely believe that if we embed aspects of Aboriginal food sovereignty, which Black Duck Foods is an example of that, um, if we embed aspects of Aboriginal food sovereignty into the Australian economy, um, we will have Aboriginal people having more jobs. We will have a truth-telling process between non-Aboriginal Australia and Aboriginal Australia, which will build better relationships. You think of, uh, I guess, an example of you know, young kids in primary schools where they have bush tucker gardens and they have a local Aboriginal person coming to share the stories of those foods to those young fellas. You have young kids having conversations between each other and respecting the food, respecting the culture and respecting the land. Um, yeah, so I, th I, you know, I work at Black Duck Foods and I love the work that I'm doing because there's this kind of aspiration of providing a better future um, 
for not just Aboriginal people but, you know, for how we treat the land and how we care for the land and how we care for the truth-telling process. Foods give, you know, they, they give... They give space for you and I to have a conversation around, you know, deep time and um, how people can benefit of, of um, having those conversations and sharing those resources. Um, I'm going to stop because I'm going on a real tangent, but um, there's so many beautiful outcomes and possibilities um, if we embed Aboriginal food sovereignty and it's not taking anything away Um, from non-Aboriginal people. It's, you know, how we can kind of move forward. Black Duck Foods is a small collective with huge horizons. It's about Aboriginal food sovereignty, relearning, looking after country, decolonising and truth-telling in a way that also provides opportunities for coming together. It's a moving and inspiring example of the power of food to create change and a very special loaf of bread. This is The Producers, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm Danny Vallant. Stay tuned as we talk to some of Australia's best farmers, makers and growers. Follow us on Instagram at Producers Podcast or contact us via deepintheweeds.com.au.